0: The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground.
1: So we've been looking at this topic of equanimity now. I started last week and I mentioned, you know, it's as central of a teaching as almost any spiritual concept that we cover. In a way, equanimity has the flavor of liberation, so, last week, what I emphasized is this shift in what we take happiness to be. Normally, the way, you know, just by culture, we're conditioned to see happiness as getting what we like and not getting what we dislike. And that's a very common, ordinary, unavoidable way that our minds have been conditioned. And so, what the Buddha and others are saying is that, well, that's not the only way to conceive and to experience happiness. There are a lot of different kinds of happiness. And one, and and we can check it out, one of the most profound, maybe the most profound kind of happiness is the mind or the heart not pushed around by having likes and dislikes. So just to keep it simple, we could spend a life imprisoned by and pursuing our likes and dislikes getting rid of our dislikes of course getting our likes but being imprisoned because it never ends likes and dislikes getting away from the dislikes getting toward the the likes what we like or we can spend a life realizing an independence from likes and dislikes either way there will be a conditioned mind or a conditioned heart here that has likes and dislikes. So it's not about pretending you don't have likes and dislikes. You might really like coffee or you may really not like coffee or you might you know, like the temperature to be really hot or you might not like hot temperature. And those things are conditioned in. But we can transform the way the mind understands and relates to likes and dislikes. That can happen. Having, getting rid of likes and dislikes, not gonna happen. I mean, they change, they evolve, right? The likes and dislikes you have now are not what you had when you were a teenager or a little kid. But we will have likes and dislikes, and they're fundamentally, ultimately, not a problem. Having likes and dislikes. The problem is, there's a like wanting something or not liking something and the mind the heart compulsively feels like I can't be happy until I get rid of the thing I don't like or I get the thing I like but is that actually true I mean there are a lot of things I'd like that I don't have I used to postpone my happiness thinking "Well, I can't be happy because you know like maybe you're single and you want to be in a relationship, or maybe you're in a relationship and you want to be single. (laughs) It goes both ways, probably equally. But maybe we can be happy. Maybe our happiness isn't dependent on the fact that we want something or the fact that we want to get rid of something. Maybe we can be happy as we skillfully do what can be done and accept what can't be done in terms of our likes and dislikes. So this practice of equanimity doesn't even mean that we have to stop acting based on our likes and dislikes. It just means that that activity, that um, response to our likes and dislikes, isn't about the pursuit of a meaningful happiness. So if I go home and have ice cream, or I go home and watch some entertainment. If I'm doing that because I think it's gonna be, make me happy in a meaningful way, I'm both deluded and I'm setting emotion suffering, even if it's a really good show that I watch. And for the period of time that I'm watching it, my mind is entertained. But the fact that I'm reinforcing the wrong idea that happiness is dependent on being entertained has consequences. And it even means, while I'm watching it, I'm trying to extract something from the experience that can actually be extracted from the experience. Like, there's this diluted sense that there's a me who's actually getting something from watching this show. And you might, if you're really honest and have some thread of mindfulness, you might even notice this when you're enjoying some pleasant sense experience. That there's some tension, even though in that moment or in those moments you're getting what you want. Have you noticed this at times? That there you are, eating what you want to eat, watching what you want to watch, having an experience that you've been looking forward to, but the mind and body, because the mind and body um, reflect each other, the mind and body are tight. Now, you might, mostly you don't notice that because the delighting. Is more on the surface, and that's what's noticed. Like, oh, I got what I want. But if we're honest and we see below the sort of superficial delight, we notice this um, energetic dependency. Like, I mean, the Buddha uses the he uses the word feeding. Like, the mind is trying to feed on something that can't provide nutriment, and the image the Buddha uses sort of it's graphic in a way. He talks about a very skilled butcher carving the meat, you know, off of a bone, and then throwing the bone that is all only left on it is just some smeared blood to the dog. And the dog, you know, because of the smell, because of the possibility of like getting some nutriment, gnaws on the bone, but doesn't get anything. Now I'm not sure if that's actually true. Maybe if they break through they get the marrow, but Let's just assume there's nothing there but a little smeared blood. Right? And even the, the dog will try so hard, it might even cut up its gums, you know, chewing on something that's hard and unproductive, like the dog isn't getting anything. That's kind of a graphic image for how we relate to entertainment, how we relate to all kinds of sense delights. I notice that even, like I used to, when I was a young adult, backpacking being out in the wilderness was a big thing i i do a lot to get out you know it was the big thing for me until i sort of got my spiritual practice going so my early 20s and but i i started to notice that you know this idea that getting out in the wilderness is going to take care of me but i noticed the hunger to get out into the wilderness when I was out there, the hunger was still there. Like but when I get on that peak, when I find the perfect place to p- set up my tent, you know, when I find the, the best place to rest for lunch. It was like the hunger, the striving, the tension didn't go away, even though, you know, all the work it took to get to where I was. You know, it's like—I mean, we went to the extreme. We like first get ourselves to Alaska, then we you know, get ourselves to this obscure place, then we find a pilot to fly us into an even more obscure place. <laughs> like the further you can get from civilization, you know, it's like—and then you're there with your the same mind that got you there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I—I I remember this is like my early twenties. I remember this place. This is. This time in particular was on the High Sierras. Um, I don't know if some of you have been done some backpacking near the Palisade Range, sort of by Bishop, kind of just a little bit west of Bishop, California, which is on the east side of the range, and uh, and it's just like this amazing place in the Lower 48, really high peaks and just so beautiful. And I just I remember it's like just seeing over and over again my mind was nowhere near the present moment. There I was, sort of in this amazing place. And it took us so long. It was like a two-week backpack trip. It, it took us so many days to get to this you know, relatively amazing place. And then it's just like, I was thinking about my girlfriend, and I was thinking about what was going to happen when I was done. And, and it, but I luckily, fortunately, I had the wherewithal to see that. So this chasing likes and dislikes, we want to notice the limitations of it. But remember, it's not that getting what you want is inherently bad. The bad thing in the sense of suffering is the reinforcing the mind's dependence on what it imagines it likes and dislikes. It's the mind's dependence that is at the root of suffering or the attachment to desire, not that the mind has desires, because we're never going to find the mind that doesn't have, I mean we can retreat, we can have moments but it's really the the ultimate freedom is uprooting the attachment, the misunderstanding of desire not the elimination of desire, it's relating to desire with equanimity, and that's what we've started to study and we'll continue for at least one more week maybe two more weeks it's a famous passage from uh, when buddhism went into china pretty early on Um, then they the first person one of the first people i should say was bodhidharma he's one of the more famous people who brought buddhism to china it was already there but he kind of made it made it uh, brought the practice more than the sort of devotional like they were devoted to the teachings but in an abstract kind of way so he brought the practice and people started to be very serious about using awareness to understand the mind and how to be free and then so the third teacher like bodhidharma passed it on to somebody and then this next person called the third patriarch the third ancestors sometimes they're called the person this person is called the third zen ancestor but in china it's called chan buddhism and when it went to japan then it became zen buddhism so this is in china and this person has this very famous teaching sometimes translated as faith in mind or faith mind and this is uh, one of the passages The great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. When like and dislike are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. Make the smallest distinction, however, and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. To set up what you like against what you dislike is the dis-ease of the mind. To set up what you like against what you dislike is the disease of the mind. And this is the disease, this is the ordinary mind or the conditioned mind, right? Because isn't it true that we're looking through this lens? Even now here at Common Ground, we look through we look at our experience in terms of our likes and dislikes. Even when we're looking around a room of people, usually it's in terms of liking and disliking. And it, as you hear what I have to say, it's usually in terms of liking what I'm saying or not liking what I'm saying. And you, th- you have a brief moment of thinking about your house or your home, your apartment. And usually it's like what you like and just, dis- oh, there are dishes in the sink. Not liking. There's food in the fridge. Liking. You know, Game of Thrones or the Warriors <laughs> game, right? Isn't there a basketball game tonight? Right? So it's sort of, oh, yeah. What? So there's, but it's just, the conditioned way to see the world. And then, as this passage suggests, when we see the world in that way, things are split infinitely apart. It's like the mind is on this road of dependency. It imagines that its real happiness is going to arise through the pursuit of likes and dislikes. And we find that that is infinitely frustrating. Now, the interesting thing is some of us are relatively privileged in the sense that we've been able to get some of the things, maybe even a lot of the things we like. And we haven't been tormented by a lot of the things we dislike. right? And so it, it seems like, yeah, it makes sense intellectually, but I'm having a pretty good run. So I'm not ready to sort of give it up. But whatever our run looks like, you know, the likes, maybe you're beautiful, physically beautiful. People think you're attractive. Maybe you're really intelligent. Maybe you've been really successful. Maybe you haven't been marginalized or insulted much. But the dependency on that good fortune, and maybe it's unconscious, but any fear, conscious or unconscious, any understanding that that can change, is suffering. Even if you're not consciously aware that your good fortune can change. Because on some level, every I mean not on some level, everything will be taken away from us. Whatever good fortune, whatever intelligence whatever beauty we have those of us who are getting a little older or we're all getting a little older but those of us who have been getting a little older for a longer time <laughs> <laughs> see this you know as the wrinkles come and the flesh gets flabbier and the mind gets dimmer and the eyesight gets dimmer I mean all these sort of things we it just becomes so apparent that the vigor Youth is not something to hold on to. It's not going to take care of me. And so many, I mean, this is the same with so many other things. So this is the first point of equanimity that we want to begin to see it as a cause for happiness. Not like to notice that even though we're very excited by this world of likes and dislikes, even though it's the easiest thing in the world for us to pursue getting rid of our dislikes and getting our likes, when we do put it down in a moment, it feels good. It's a quiet, pleasant feeling. But when you make any move towards equanimity, contentedness, simplicity, it's like such a relief. Like you might be in your meditation looking like you're really serene and quiet, but there you are, Solving some problem, which is often what we do when we're sitting, to be honest, right? You're there solving some relationship problem, some problem at work, renovating your house, fixing your partner, and you're there just sort of... And then, (coughs) if your practice is going well, then in a moment you notice that the mind is thinking, obsessing about something, right? And then, if the practice is really strong, after a few moments of noticing what the mind is doing, that activity ceases because the thinking was dependent on not noticing that it's just thinking. So, when that wisdom of the mind notices, oh, that's just thinking, that's just obsessing, that's just worrying or planning or analyzing or whatever it was, right? And then it ends. And then, if so, if there's enough continuity where the mindfulness, the awareness, notices the ending of that drama, then you can notice, oh, that. That's a real relief to not be obsessing, to no longer be spinning with that little drama, that self importance. It's a relief. And it isn't a relief because you've resolved whatever, like you come to the end of the planning and now everything's planned, or you fixed your partner, or you. It's not that you got to the end. That's not what makes it a relief. The relief is the mind realizing that that pursuit, whatever that obsessive pursuit was, is unnecessary. It doesn't, it appeared that you wouldn't be happy until you got to the end of it, till you figured it out or whatever. But then in the moment of it dropping, the mind realizes the happiness, the relief, isn't dependent on gratification, like planning the renovation and getting it done. The real relief is Realizing it it doesn't need to be picked up. That is not a problem that needs to be picked up. It can be put down. Now a lot of people misunderstand this insight and think, well then, that means I won't do anything because if putting things down is a real relief, a release has a flavor of liberation, why would I ever pick something up? Well the mind is going to keep picking things up but eventually what we realize is that we can pick it up without attachment without right we can get involved in messy things like maybe you get involved in economic injustice or racial injustice i mean some of these intractable problems or you know you decide to get involved in the middle east to help make things a better better there or or global warming or all of these things that are so interdependent and complicated and there's so much resistance and ignorance. But now you're not doing it as a pursuit of likes and dislike. like you hate the world because there's this unsolved problem and you won't be happy until it's solved. You're engaging it because you care. There's compassion in your heart and remember, compassion is a response it's a beautiful response And when we have a compassionate response, it's beautiful whether or not our response fixes the problem. Having a powerful compassionate response to your personal problem or a world problem, that compassionate response is the fruit of compassion. And if the person gets better or the world gets fixed, all the better. That will be also really nice, but the healing, the beauty is in the responding, not whether you have the power to make things different. And this is what we have to learn about all of these difficult, challenging things that we all face in our families, within our own mind and heart, as well as, of course, in our society and our world how can we engage how can we show up and this brings up another really important point about equanimity because the near enemy of equanimity is an indifference uh, non-involvement non-engagement so equanimity doesn't have any meaning without engagement right it's like having ki- if you want if you want to realize equanimity you have to have kids or go visit your parents or get involved in one of these important issues, these places of great suffering that I've mentioned, and there are many others, of course. Because that's equanimity, when we can be engaged, when we can show up, where it's messy, where we don't even know what the first step is, but we're going to do something anyway and see what happens. And learn from it and then do something else and then do something else and each step of the way we're doing two things we're learning more about actually pragmatically how to make the situation better and we're expressing we're living out the reality of equanimity which is a kind of love in Buddhism and the Buddhist teachings equanimity is an expression of love there's kindness or basic friendliness There's compassion, there's joy, appreciative joy, appreciating what's beautiful, and there's equanimity. These are the four qualities of love. Isn't that great? That equanimity is a quality of love. It has a real power in the same way that compassion has a power, or gentleness, kindness has a power, appreciative joy, seeing what's beautiful has a power. To be able to show up with equanimity, that humility... I don't know what to do. I care, but I don't know what to do. But, I, but I'm not afraid to be right in the middle. I'm not afraid to respond and to learn. So the, the key with developing equanimity, and then I'll, I'll, I'll make these points and then I'll open it up for discussion. But just the, the part I wanted to share tonight that the first step is we have to Uh, have a sense, we have to have a direct, immediate sense of what equanimity is like. And the easiest way to do that is to find a place in your life where you feel safe, which is not easy for some people, right? If you're somebody who's being abused or living, being marginalized, being oppressed in some way. But one way or another, at least to some degree, in those places where we feel safe, we can begin to notice, for moments at least, the mind or the heart not being in a contentious relationship with the conditions of the moment. Right? I mean, maybe the only place that happens for us is when we're home and we go to bed, and for those hours, you know, we're rel- we feel relatively safe. And unharassed you know and then so we because of the relative safety because of the relative comfort we notice that the mind isn't struggling to make the moment different than it is and then we notice that 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 non struggling that non contentiousness sort of makes a imprint in the mind sort of like huh this feels really good not to be struggling with life not to be resisting not to be trying to make things happen wanting things to be different than they are so we we need to actually notice what non-reactivity what acceptance but not needing things to be different than they are. We need to notice what that feels like, what that looks like in the mind. Like, what is that mind, what does that heart look like, feel like, that isn't struggling? And then and then what happens from there, we start to have some confidence, like, well, maybe this is the way whatever I can do when I have perfect conditions, you know, the nice situation in my life, maybe there's something in how the mind is relating to life, to the conditions of the moment, when they're pleasant and safe, that I can then bring to moments of my life that are more noxious, more challenging, right? So then we get up in the morning, right? And we look in the mirror, and instead of, our strong habit to not like what we see or to want to fix what we see, we were, we're kind of interested what well, maybe the heart, the mind can be at ease and accepting, non-contentious, with this experience. And then we go look in the fridge for breakfast, and there's not so much there. Maybe then. And then we are in traffic, or waiting for the late bus, or around people that are scary. You know, and then we, so then what we're doing is we're taking that relative insight, seeing when things are safe and comfortable, the mind at ease, the mind not struggling, the mind's capacity for acceptance, the mind's willingness to be close, right? Because when things are comfortable and safe, we're willing to be close, intimate with our body, with our emotions, because they're not afflictive, afflicting us and then we're so we can't it's not about maintaining the safety or the comfort because that is ephemeral that like when when we leave our bed or whatever it is wherever we find that safety then we're not going to have that safety but one thing that we can always have is this capacity of acceptance of non-contentiousness or you could say non-hate non-aversion Non distraction, non denial, right? What could prevent my mind from accepting? Or what could prevent my mind from loving? What possible circumstance or conditional? Clearly, I'm not saying that certain circumstances, if they were to arise for me, it might be hard for me to relate with a loving mind. But isn't it possible that? no matter the circumstance that would arise for me, I could train myself, train my heart and mind to relate with compassion and love and joy and equanimity, you know, some quality of love, no matter what happens, or some expression of wisdom. See, this is the thing. Either we're trying to find happiness by controlling the world, the likes and dislikes, or we find happiness by transforming how we relate. And this is really what equanimity is all about. We're realizing that we can transform how we relate to the conditions, the circumstances. We can relate with acceptance. We can relate with non-struggle. Remember, non-struggle doesn't mean we're not engaging the present moment. Like I said earlier, we only really understand what non-struggling is by through engagement. So that's why initially we learn about acceptance by disengagement. We're in our bed, the lights are off, it's warm enough, nobody's harassing us. That's a, you know, that's easy to practice acceptance cuz we're retreated in those moments when we feel safe from all of our problems. But that's a very ephemeral kind of equanimity. Right? It's not stable because it's dependent on you know, things being safe and comfortable. <coughs> but then we're interested. Okay, so we. this is the same thing with concentration and meditation. When our concentration is really good, let's say I'm attending to my breath coming in, aware of my breath going out. If I do that with real uh, wholeheartedness, real sincerity, my mind will get really concentrated. So concentrated that my mind isn't attending to my to-do list isn't attending to the ache in my hip, the pain in my knee, isn't attending to the sound of the Harley Davidson driving down 27th Avenue or somebody sneezing in the room or this person snoring over there or whatever might be happening in the meditation hall because it's retreated. It's like the example I was giving you know being safe at home but we can do this in meditation And we should, if you can develop that skill, it would be really useful to retreat, to seclude the mind from all that's agitating, and to experience real peace. It's temporary, but it's real peace. It's a kind of powerful refreshment for the mind. Because it's in those moments when the mind is really concentrated, the mind remembers the reality of not struggling It realizes the mind that isn't struggling. And to be honest with ourselves, if we haven't regularly touched, either we're really privileged and we're we're really well-liked and sincerely loved by those around us and we have enough wealth and enough health, and on top of that, we can really concentrate the mind, mostly we don't know the mind that isn't struggling. Most of us don't know well enough because if we really knew the mind, the reality of a mind that's not struggling, we'd be pretty far along in the direction of awakening or enlightenment because that's what enlightenment is. It's the deepening insight into the mind, or you could say heart, that is engaged right in the middle of the messiness and limitations of the world it, it's realizing the mind that isn't getting pushed around by likes and dislikes when it's right in the middle of things. That's what being awake, that's what liberation, that's what the Buddha realized and taught. Realizing the mind that isn't getting pushed around by likes and dislikes. Not, not having likes and dislikes, but not being pushed around by it. So we first get a taste of that when we're retreated, we're safe, the mind is quiet, it's not around agitating, disturbing sense experience. But we need to get interested. Instead of just taking advantage of the relative pleasantness of those moments in our lives, well, oh, this is nice, I think I'll take a nap. It's so pleasant, I feel so safe, I'll catch up on my sleep. Instead, what we want to do is we want to get interested in that mind. Look at this. Isn't this amazing? Here's the mind. Here's the heart. And it's so pure, right? Pure in the sense of there is no part of this mind right now that is struggling with the conditions. That's what we need to wake up. We have to see that, and we have to see it so we we get fascinated. Like, if you want to get obsessed or interested in anything, Get interested in the mind when it's not doing anything. But not a sleepy mind. This is not a sleeping mind. It's like really bright, really clear, but it, it doesn't neurotically need to do anything, right? To get what it likes or get rid of what it does doesn't like. This is the very definition of the deepest state of concentration what in the Buddhist tradition is called the fourth jhana. It's the mind, it's defined by the mind free from craving, meaning the mind that is so retreated that it isn't affected by its likes and dislikes. But when it's just due to concentration, it will only last as long as the concentration lasts. And when the stillness of mind goes away, our obsession with our likes and dislikes reemerges. But now, if we took the time to notice, to get interested in, oh, this is amazing. The mind is so peaceful, so equanimous. So that interest in the equanimity of the mind, the non-reactivity of the mind, then continues as we come back to a more ordinary state where we're fascinated by our likes and dislikes. But now we're sort of going to approach them like, well, what would equanimity look like here? You know, So when you go home and you open the freezer and there's the ice cream, It's not about not eating the ice cream, it's about can you eat the ice cream without having the mind dependent on the sweetness, on the pleasantness of it? Like can you experience pleasantness without feeling like you need it? Or can you experience unpleasantness without thinking that it's destructive in some way? Like, even, this is so interesting, when we get more sensitive, you know, we realize how many toxins there are, and uh, there's no way to avoid it. I mean, we, we can suffer quite a bit trying to avoid all the toxins, and uh, I'm not saying we shouldn't try to avoid what we can avoid, but even when we do the best we can, we're still exposed to toxins, like a car with no catalytic converter drives by, and you're there in the fumes. So, is not liking it, and identified with the not liking it, liking that? Is that helping you in any way? So there you are. It's a lot of pollution in Minneapolis. You know, sometimes the air gets kind of clogged, no wind for a while, and it gets really bad. You know, they even say, you know, don't exercise unless you have to, or something like that, when the smog or when the air pollution gets really bad. So then, what is the right way to relate to that? We, Can not we be happy, even though it might be bad for our health? Do we have to, because the system is being harmed, let's say, do we have to suffer? No, we don't have to suffer. Uh, it would be like pathologizing aging. Right? It's like, I'm aging, I can't be happy. Right? I mean, that's sort of how we feel, but it's not correct. We can be happy even as we're aging, even as we're dying. Right? Do we have to pathologize anything actually about life? Because life is just ups and downs. Sometimes things are really nice and pleasant and safe. Sometimes things are threatening and difficult and confusing. Do we have to pathologize that? Or can, is there another way, this way of equanimity? So like I said, we'll continue with this for a couple weeks. But it would be nice we have a little bit more than 10 minutes. You know, I mentioned last week, this is something that we know a lot about because we've been pushed around by our likes and dislikes a lot. So it would be nice to hear your questions, but especially your own successes and challenges with likes and dislikes and your own authentic experiences of equanimity as it's it's shown up in your life. Remember to point this about an inch away right at your mouth, not like this. The directional mic. So who'd like to begin for the group? You can say your first name, too, if you'd like. Yeah, Nick. I'm gonna pass this back.
2: I'm Nick. Um, one thing I've been noticing uh, working with likes and difl- dislikes and then especially with pathologizing things that I'm uh, afraid, of, afraid of has been at my um, job. We just had a staff change and lost a lot of our... Um, hard-working staff and I'm one of the supervisors there and I got really freaked out and I was like this is gonna be way too stressful for me to handle and It was it's been really stressful and I noticed you know the thought like stress is not good It's probably releasing all this cortisol I think I read an article on the internet about you know like people in the service industry are like well It's like one of the highest stress jobs like what am I doing here? I can't as a human being you know handle this I'm too sensitive to do this kind of work Um and uh so i i went to like a career counselor and i was like i got to find a new job but every time i and i even applied for a job that i got that i thought i would like but i turned it down because i had this feeling that i keep i'm trying to avoid like this thing that i'm afraid of this like stressful job being an authority figure and having to supervise people and deal with people who are unhappy about having their hours cut and then dealing with management that's cutting hours and um so it's really interesting. I'm like I kept I'm like, why like I feel like I have to go into this more, um, and I can't leave and uh I've been finding you know like working with lots of fear and kind of feeling fear arise like in the moment when dealing with people and feeling what that fear feels like. You know, it feels more like you know, kind of like trying to go inside of it instead of just see it from the surface, like go into it like it's a room and be like, What does fear look like in the moment? What does my body feel like? Um and something that I've noticed that's been positive there's still a lot of fear before i work go to work sometimes i feel like i just like i gotta run away but i go in there and um something i've noticed is that you know as i kind of get into that fear more is that time has a different flow to it, it feels like the day actually flows by a lot faster and there's you know i'm it's really interesting it seems like it kind of has a more more of a sense of flow to it and the fear yeah it doesn't always pass but yeah kind of seems like there's like a sense of peace sometimes at the end of the day after going through a day like that
1: Thank you, Nick. And one of the things I liked about what you shared is that, uh, that quality of investigation that you heard and how Nick was relates to his mind in that situation, there's no way to investigate unless there's some wisdom and equanimity. Because if there's no equanimity, the mind is just desperate to get rid of the yucky feeling of being the supervisor. But if there's some equanimity... Then there can be some investigation and some insight and learning. Thanks so much, Nick. Who'd like to go next? Yes, please. Thanks, Nick.
3: Um, So I'm a mom. And I've been playing around with this image of the Kuan Yin mama bear. Because sometimes as a mom, I just get really aggressive feeling, like protective and, you know, For my kids, and it just feels like if I'm not... It's not really always of my control. It's, like, instinctual. And if my kids are hurting or upset, or I feel like somebody's hurting them and upsetting them, I'm not able to respond with compassion. And I'll come later. But in the moment... It's this really powerful instinct, and I'm not really sure how to work with it because it comes from this really strong
1: instinct. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah.
3: And I know there's layers to that with, that I can work within myself from when I was young, you know, or wanted to feel protected. So I'm working with that, but in the moment, it's like this. And I know as a thought form, I'm causing more harm not helping, but it just...
1: Yeah. No, that's, that's really a great example. So a mother, and she used the word, if you didn't understand, she said a Kuan Yin mama bear. Is that what she said? Kuan Yin is, the, in the Buddhist tradition uh, in China, especially, Kuan Yin is this uh, archetype of compassion and uh, often seen as having these, an immeasurable capacity to respond to the cries of the world. So it's really like fits this, this force that you're talking about when a mother, a parent, s- sees her ch- child being harmed and wanting to respond. In in the Tibetan tradition, for example, they have an image that you use in meditation. You're a limbless parent. Your limbs have been removed, and your child is being swept away in a river, right? So you see, on purpose, they they create this image because what you want to do is feel that force as nature you know that protecting force you don't need to be afraid of it um, but you don't but because what you really want to do is free up a kind of creativity in terms of how you respond to take care of your child without being afraid of not being successful you might not be able to protect or save your child But you want to do whatever you can do, but you don't want to be afraid of not being successful because that doesn't actually help you do what you can do. And this is, I mean, this is like postgraduate level equanimity practice, being a parent, especially of young children. But how about when your child's 35? See, then you get a sense of what equanimity might look like. Like, I still care about you, son or daughter, or whatever, but... Your happiness or unhappiness is your business now cuz you're 35, <laughs> you know? Not my business. <laughs> right? So so we understand that those of you who are parents of older kids, adult kids, you understand what equanimity is like. It's like I still love you, but it's not my responsibility. I did my work as imperfectly as I did, you know, I did it, but I did it. I'm done. And now it's your job. And so you can kind of see that like, yeah, when a child's an infinite infant you just have to like put yourself down on the track i mean you'll do anything to protect your child but do you need to be tight right so or do you need to be afraid can there be a powerful response protecting response without the contraction in the mind body and heart that's a that's a like a koan a question yes thanks so much for bringing that up it's really great
0: yeah, Mary, please. Um, you mentioned something about being attached or acquiring things that please you and things that you like and that how um, that doesn't really make you, it's not real happiness, like acquiring these things that you like, or it's kind of fleeting, like you're always
1: chasing it. Mm-hmm. and um, it's, It is a real happiness, it's just limited.
0: Um, so... You know, I've mentioned a couple of times I moved from San Francisco and I had an apartment that I liked and I had some things that I really liked and that I had acquired. And um, when I decided to move here, I decided to sell everything and donate everything else to Goodwill and I packed my little tiny car with as much as I could carry. um, Mostly things that were compact and that I used every day and things that I had gathered from traveling and artwork that I had done. Um, and I shipped some other things ahead for six months after I got here, I had one plate, two forks, two knives, two spoons and a pan. And I was just so blissfully happy and free because I didn't have the burden of all of this stuff that I had to maintain, that I had to worry about getting dirty, that I had to clean, that I, um, you know, and I and I did accept some things that came to me um, that weren't necessarily things I would have picked, but I was grateful for those anyway. But I just was so incredibly ha- happy not having
1: all of this stuff. Um, I just thought that was worth mentioning. Yeah, yeah. And it, I think we can all explore that each of us in our own way just thinning some part of our life out a little bit and just whether it's thinning out the dramas in our mind you know like I mentioned when we drop something in a set oh it feels good or when you clean out a closet you might also notice that feels good when you give things away simply uh, simplicity feels good and then See if you can maintain that light feeling even when your life gets complicated and you have kids and so you have a lot of stuff, right? Because that's an even higher level. Like we think, oh, the monks and the nuns, you know, who just have their three robes and a begging bowl, that boy. But it's actually harder being a layperson with responsibilities, especially if you're parents and, uh, you know, having to earn a living and, say, for retirement, and all those things. That's a higher level of liberation, in a sense, because it's more seductive, getting attached. So anyway, it's 8.30, so we need to leave it here. We'll just take a few seconds, like all the words. Just enough time for a breath or two. And just noticing the simplicity of the silence. And then remembering that for the next week or so, becoming a student of our likes and dislikes and how the mind relates, being really creative and investigate the possibilities of relating to our likes and dislikes in different ways.
0: This talk, like all
3: programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank
1: you for listening.